Once again, to the Capital Weekly Podcast, I am Capital Weekly Editor-in-Chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my colleague Tim Foster. How are you doing, Tim? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. And uh, we have a guest with us today because uh, we have, uh, I think, a pretty interesting show today. We're going to talk about something I think a lot of people may not really be fully aware of uh, in regard to their utility bills and some big changes that could be coming up for them as early as January. Uh, To talk about that, we are joined by Loretta Lynch, who is the former president of the California Public Utilities Commission, uh, who's going to share a lot of information with us here today. Uh, Ms. Lynch, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rich. Absolutely. Well, like I say, um, I I will admit uh, we are not as up to speed on this probably as uh, maybe you are for sure. Tell us a little bit about what we're talking about here and this potential big spike in PG&E rates for sure that uh, could be coming down the pike as early as January. Well, so there are several PG&E rates that are going to be uh, increased over the next year. One of them is based on the PG&E general rate case. And that's what you've seen recently in the press, that PG&E wants another 20% increase in their rates for a whole lot of uh, unnecessary spending from my perspective. That is actually almost a done deal. The PUC will vote on that this month in November to give PG&E yet another of their now annual rate increases. Extraordinary. But this this is about something that's going to happen in 2024 and 2025 that is still cooking at the PUC. And that's why I wanted to come and talk with you all about how egregious and wrongheaded this um, train is that hasn't quite left the station. And that is basically a monthly fixed charge or a monthly tax on everybody's utility bill that will be will be charged regardless of how much electricity you use. And this is, of course, only for the private utilities, not for SMUD or LADWP, but for all the private utilities in California, they will be able to charge every customer a monthly charge regardless of how much, uh, how much energy you use. But what it will be linked to is what you earn. So it's going to be an income-based charge, first in the nation. No other state has considered or um, adopted such a cockamamie proposal. But uh, the PUC is in the process of adopting one right now. Well, what was the impetus for this? I know there's been legislation that may allow this. I think it was AB 205 from last year. Um, is that the sole impetus for this, or is there something else at play here that brought that, you know that's inspiring all this? No, AB 205 is the sole impetus, and that was a budget trailer bill. And as you all know, being old Sacramento hands, uh, all sorts of uh, directions to various agencies are inserted into the budget trailer bills that are passed along with the budget. So AB 205 was passed because it was a trailer bill. There was no public hearing on it. There was no opportunity for anyone to weigh in. The language was inserted, and 72 hours later, the bill was passed uh, along uh, with the budget. And this language is particularly pernicious because it directs the PUC to to consider and institute a minimum monthly bill based on income. And it directs the PUC to have at least three tiers of billing based on three tiers of income. The purported purpose was to protect low income ratepayers so that... uh, so that their bills would not increase as much given all the 
enormous cost pressures that are now bearing down on California's customers because of all the profligate spending of PG&E and its compatriots. And so the legislature's purported reason was to try to protect low-income ratepayers. But frankly, what the PUC is doing and, and also what the bill requires is um, going to have the opposite effect. And, and what it's really going to do is hurt the working class. It's going to slam people making over $50,000 a year with a rate increase. And it will really limit their ability to control their electric bills by using le less electricity. And what that does is it turns on its head California's decades-long commitment to energy conservation. Because the less you use, the less you pay has always been the rule. Not anymore, thanks to AB 205. So uh, the tiers, it sounds like you have some knowledge of the tiers. Do Have they been set or is that something that's still in a form of negotiation? It's still in a form of negotiation. Various parties, and there are many parties uh, proposing different ideas to the PUC, have proposed various uh, levels of uh, when the tiers kick in. So one of them is at the federal poverty rate, which is $30,000 roughly for a family of four. One of them is double the federal poverty rate, which is roughly 60,000. And then the next one is 150 or 250,000. And it seems as by the PUC's questioning of the parties that they're looking at uh, essentially 50,000 and 150,000 for those cut for the cut points. And so those making under 50,000 may not see their bills increase. They might even get a dollar or two decrease in their monthly bills. But frankly, people making under 50,000 are already eligible for the CARE program or the FARA program, the Family Energy Rate Reduction Assistance, Rate Assistance. And those programs are even more generous than what's being considered right now by the PUC. But then for people between 50 and 150,000, they're going to get whacked and their bills are going to go up at least $300 a year. Uh, and some proposals would make that $600 or more a year. It, so income certainly seems to be the main criteria. Are Is there anything else being considered in this formula? Because, you know, clearly it, the cost of living in San Francisco or Los Angeles is very different than if you're maybe in Bakersfield or, or a smaller community, is there any thought being given to the, the cost of living uh, where these folks are, be, aside from just how much money they make? Nope, because the meat cleaver approach of AB 205 says, uh, design um, a fixed charge, a minimum monthly tax or bill based on income and, and adopt it. So that's what the PUC is doing. The legislation had a meat cleaver approach and the PUC has a meat cleaver implementation approach. And so that means that people who make 150,000 will pay the same amount as people who make 150 million. So all those folks who have the $10,000 square foot homes and the swimming pool, their bill's probably already over $10,000 a year. So if they get whacked with another 100 bucks a month because they make over 150,000, they may not even feel it. But if you're making 150,000 in, you know, Davis or in Oakland or in Los East Los Angeles, you're, you know, that can still be tough for a family of four and your bill is going to go up 100 bucks a month maybe. 
under some of the proposals or over $1,000 a year under some of the proposals. And those people are going to feel it. So what I, I object to this on so many levels. One, it was the bill was completely procedurally improper. They should not have created, they should not have stuffed in this extraordinarily controversial and uh, first in the nation change of how we do rate making into a budget trailer bill in 72 hours and rammed it through with no public hearings. Number one, process, big problems. Two, the way this is designed is really going to slam people between $50,000 and I would say a million dollars. People who actually care what their electric bill is every month and people who are having to scramble to pay it, right? Because that's some big numbers for no good reason, except for that the legislature mandated. And then third, the privacy concerns. How are they going to enforce knowing what your income is? And let me tell you, I don't want PG&E to know my income, right? PG&E already, let's just say, has a, a bullseye on my head for being a critic. And I now have to give over my income to PG&E. And so PG&E actually gets the optics of that. And they say, no, 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 it'll be a third party. Well, what private third party corporation that is not government and is not um, required to have confidentiality and security as a government would have, do I want to give my income to nobody and the ftb very smartly is saying hey leave us out of this we got plenty to do just dealing with people's taxes we don't want to be the monitor of people's electric bills too so they're going to create this entirely new private bureaucracy that has who knows what security and who knows what privacy protections that we are all going to have to submit our income to and that to me is a recipe for disaster i'm actually surprised at, at that part of it more than almost anything else, right? Having, having stuff get, you know, jammed through on budget trailer bills is hardly new, but uh, given the concern over data privacy in this day and age, it's really surprising to me that we haven't seen big TV campaigns talking about, you know, big, big brother getting your income or, or what have you. I'm not trying to give any ideas to any of the PR firms out there, um, but that's a fairly surprising thing, which leads me to ask, okay, how come we haven't seen any pushback on that front? That seems to be one of the real obvious reasons that uh, aside the money, the cost aside, that would seem to be something that would be the impetus for a lot of pushback. But I, I haven't heard any. Well, that's because basically right now, this really bad, unworkable idea that is going to just result in the utilities getting more money for no good reason is um, being worked out in the stew, the very messy stew of the administrative process at the PUC which is pretty um, off the grid for most people. And so that very bureaucratic, very supposedly technical process of rate making and rate design is happening. But the PUC has over 30 questions to the parties about the administration of this. Is it going to be everybody submits? It kind of has to be. What happens if somebody doesn't submit their income? What if they lie? How is it going to be enforced? How is it going to be checked? The PUC is looking at all those questions now because I think that they understand what a big pile got dropped in their lap. Um, and they know that, that there are no rules that they can create that would be as tough as hey, why don't we just trade data with the FTB, which the FTB has shut down in a hot minute. So how are they going to create this new private bureaucracy that everybody has to report to their income to? And how are they going to enforce it if you don't report? Because they still have to charge your electric bill. So they have to tell you something. 
And how are they going to check that you that you didn't lie? And then, of course, you got the whole issue of the Donald Trumps of the world, the the real estate you know brokers who show little income but make well, who knows how much they make, a lot or a little, but but their taxes show little income, right? And so those people get into the fifty thousand dollar range when they're living in ten thousand square foot houses. It's all just unworkable and ill considered. Um, and also, what's the cost of that? And guess who's going to pay that? The customer. The customer is going to pay for all this unnecessary bureaucratic administrative cost. Crazy. So where did this come from? Like who who wrote this bill? Who who decided that this needed to happen at this point in time? Uh, because you're right. I, I feel like this really has snuck in under the radar of most people. Uh, usually, you know, you're talking about your privacy concerns, and I'm thinking about the people that we usually hear you know, shaking the flagpole about privacy stuff. I haven't heard a single mention of this from any of them. So uh, what was the impetus of doing this right now? Uh, you know, because pg and when they can grab money, they do. Right? <laughs> um, so it was a budget committee bill. That's what a trailer bill is. It's from the budget committee and nobody takes responsibility for it. And this was a 2022 budget committee bill. So this wasn't under the new speakership. And, you know, how much the governor's fingerprints are on this, nobody really knows, although there's a lot of scuttlebutt in Sacramento about that. So pretty clearly to me, when you read the language, the utilities had a hand in writing it because because uh, utility code language is so much of a art and science together that the words used are very clearly words used by somebody who knows the utility code. And I seriously doubt it was a consumer group who wrote it. So here we are. And, and that's why, frankly, there is this movement um, to just repeal this section. Because now that the PUC is making the stew and figuring out what ingredients go into the pot, um, the people who are watching that are watching with horror. Yeah, I want to I want to definitely ask you about that in just a second. But I also, um, uh, what is this money targeted for? Has has PG&E indicated what, why they need this amount of money? Uh, is there a project that they always say it's going to be dedicated to? And if so, is there anything that requires it to be spent on that uh, and to where it can't be siphoned off for something else? No, no, and no. Nope. They just want some more money. So, hey, let's get the legislature to stick it in a budget trailer bill and make the PUC give us more money. Because, hey, when you are a private company that treats your customers as your cash cow, you don't really care. If you can go get some more cash by milking that cow, that's what you're going to do. And that's what this bill does. And so the purported let's protect low income customers by making sure that they are in a different rate schedule. That's already being done at the PUC. There are two programs that already protect low income customers better than this and uh, have a higher income level that you can be protected on. You get a 25 or a 30 to 35% discount on your bill. And I know about those programs because when I was PC president 20 years ago, I expanded those programs to cover more Californians. So now about one in five California customers, residential customers, um, receive care or FARA discounts. That's good because those people need them. So really what this is about is the utilities are spending out of control. Our rates have doubled over the last decade, doubled. And that is not true of any other state. 
So California is now in the top five states in terms of private utility rates. And there's no good reason for us to be there. And we can look at the underlying reasons why our rates are going up so high or so quickly and so high and what the cost drivers really are here because the utilities are making out like bandits in terms of their profiteering, in terms of their spending on all sorts of unnecessary infrastructure, and in terms of their not spending on necessary infrastructure because the PUC is no longer a watchdog, it's a lapdog. So that's the big problem. And to address that big problem, and, and I everybody's hearing rates are too high, what the heck, right? So to address that big problem, the utilities offered a sleight of hand solution, which is, hey, let's protect um, low income customers and then let's have an income based uh, portion of the utility bill so that as rates rise, we'll throw some of those rate increases on higher income customers. The problem is the way they wrote it, it's going to slam working class customers and then it's not going to be graduated enough in the higher levels for millionaires to even feel it or notice it. Well, and to play devil's advocate, I did see some responses from PG&E and the other electrical companies, and they claim that this will not really result in a in them getting more money, they'll just be getting the same money, according to them, from different sources. So in other words, low-income people will be paying less and the higher-income people will be paying more. And you clearly disagree with that analysis. Well, there's nothing that says um, this is automatically on top of what their, what their current rates are. But there's nothing that says to the contrary. There's no promise of uh, lower rates. There's no promise of a rate cap in this statute. There's no promise of anything except for a shell game. And so, yes, to begin with the first year, um, the PUC in a separate process called the general rate case approves costs. And then as part of that, generally what they do is then they allocate the costs across the rate, the customer classes, right? Um, they don't do it by income. They do it by a variety of other things like uh, urban customers and suburban customers and rural customers and agriculture customers, a bunch of different customers, industrial customers. So, and those are all statutorily set. So now we have a new rate class, which is by income, and they're going to have to play the shell game among that. But, but my fear is once you have a fixed rate that does not depend on the product you're selling to your customer, you are going to have a pressure to stuff a bunch of costs into that fixed rate because the fixed rate can just keep going up. And based on some other statutes that were passed in the Newsom administration, um, the, it is easier now to stuff in additional costs into that, into the fixed costs. And so the way the statutes will interact will result in higher profits and more money to the utilities. But I cannot say that this bill alone does that. This bill does not um, prevent that from happening. And this bill enables it to happen essentially more under the radar. And so the more under the radar it is, the more the utilities profit. That's one fundamental truism that I have learned. Well, one thing we're, we're um, talking about being under the radar, it's clearly not under the radar to several lawmakers in the building right now because uh, there was a, a letter sent uh, to Alice Bushing Reynolds, who is the current president of the um, PUC, uh, about a week ago, signed by a significant number of lawmakers 
bringing up many of these very questions, the impact on uh, ratepayers, the lack of public hearings, and urging them to, um, you know, at the very least to delay this, um, the implementation of AB 205 until these things have happened, until there's been more public hearings, more scrutiny on the impact of the bill, uh, maybe a, a complete relook at how these tiers are set up. Um, what's your perspective on this? Because I, I think that they're, they're supposed to respond to them, uh, I think, today or uh, early next week. So there's a deadline on this. What's your thoughts on maybe the impact of this? Is there Are we looking at a potential legislative effort to, to repeal, delay, whatever on this? You know, what, what what's going to happen now? Well, Rich, I hope that we're looking at a legislative effort to repeal this because it's so ill-considered and jammed through. And it is true that the PUC has continued the procedural irregularity that occurred through the original trailer bill by denying the ability for public participation hearings. And that is highly unusual when it comes to rate making. They're saying, hey, we're not making a rate. We're just deciding who pays the rate we've already agreed to. So we don't have to have public hearings. Um, that's a very crimped perspective. It's a very crimped interpretation of their duty to inform the public. But I think they get it. This is going to be highly unpopular and incredibly unworkable. So why do they want to tell anybody about it before they have to? <laughs> but I think they're thinking. So it'll be very interesting to see how the PUC responds, because as you know, the PUC is now set again, right? The last PUC commissioners were uh, confirmed this summer. And so the Newsom administration has has appointed or nominated and, and now confirmed all the members of the PUC. So it is the Newsom's PUC. And so it'll be very interesting to see what happens here and whether or oh. not they're going to be responsive to the legislature, because they certainly have not been responsive to the consumer parties. And I think that's a key question here for me to make sure I understand the power that the PUC has to, uh, like, again, whether it's to delay, to reject, what what exactly is the PUC's power here? What can they do about this should they choose to? They could say, huh, we considered this. You told us to consider it. And we will now design rates the following. The first tier is our already in operation, already super functional care programs for low-income people. And the second and the third rates are the same, which is zero or a dollar. Or you could say the, the second rate is zero and the third rate's a dollar. And then they would be technically complying with having tiers and having a set fee. They can set that set fee at zero. And then they would not create all of the mess. Now, the problem is even differentiating between the second and the third tier is going to require some kind of income submission and verification. And why set up that Orwellian 1984 private company process if you don't have to, really? Well, and it, and it begs the other question, and maybe we even mentioned it earlier, but, um, you know, data privacy has clearly been a significant issue here in the state of California. We we led the nation in, uh, you know, uh, implementing uh, statewide privacy laws. Um is there a potential here for a ballot measure to repeal AB 205 should the PUC not move? And I ask that because ballot measures cost a fortune. And since this is, would mostly impact lower uh, income people, is there is there the will and the, the money behind it to go that route? 
Well, ballot measures definitely cost a fortune, but in terms of who it's going to impact, it's going to impact people who make fifty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. That second tier, or maybe fifty to two hundred thousand. We don't know what the PUC is going to set as that middle tier. It's going to be somewhere in the range of fifty and one hundred fifty. Maybe it's sixty, maybe it's two hundred, but it's that range. Those folks are going to get soaked, soaked. And frankly, even people making one hundred fifty thousand are going to get soaked because they're going to pay a whole lot more for nothing, right? So it doesn't matter. And the real people who are going to get soaked are these people, apartment um, uh, uh, renters and small homes and urban uh, customers. And the reason is that they don't, a lot of urban customers on the coast don't use much electricity. So their bills are in general lower than customers in the Central Valley. All of a sudden, their bills are going to go up 50 bucks a month, right? 30 to 100 bucks a month are really the proposals on the table. A month. 100 bucks a month is $1,200 a year when your electric bill might not even be that right now if you live in San Francisco in an 800 square foot apartment and don't use much electricity, right? So those folks are going to get soaked. It's going to be smaller, smaller homes and apartments. Um, and it's going to be the folks who don't use as much uh, air conditioning or don't have a swimming pool, something that's a huge energy suck. And those so folks to, are going to get slammed. So to step back a bit, you historically have not been a huge uh, friend to PG&E. And in fact, some years ago, you actually called for PG&E to be taken over to become a public utility. And that was a while ago. Where where do you where stand on that today? And and you know why did you think that? How would that work? And 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 is it still a good idea? Sure. So I started in the energy regulatory field as a PUC commissioner, and my job, according to state law, as a PUC commissioner, was as a regulator, not a friend. The problem is, too many PUC commissioners were friends, and so I am seen as an enemy of PG&E because I was an appropriate regulator who used the requirements of California law to appropriately regulate a private company um, that, uh, that was a monopoly that people were required to use. And if that is not a friend, I am happy to be judged by that because that wasn't my role. My role was a regulator, not a friend. And as a regulator, I saw the profligate spending of PG&E. I saw the whining and dining of regulators and legislators and policymakers on the customer's dime. And I saw how much PG&E and its compatriots, SCE and SDG&E and SEMPRA, um, cozied up, if not owned, too many of the decision makers in the process that gets from what the law says to how much money is taken out of your wallet every month and for what. And it is an egregious failure of the state of California that we do not properly regulate our private utilities, that we can't have them be reliable and safe. Those are the first two requirements of any utility and California has not been able to make that happen with its private utilities. And so PG&E has lost the benefit of the doubt. It is a rogue company that has chosen bankruptcy over wildfire victims that it was liable to in order to get out from under that liability. 
It chose bankruptcy when I was at the PUC to get out from under its state uh, requirements to run its system in a reasonable manner. And so this company does not deserve its monopoly status in California. And I believe farther or even more that our economy cannot withstand the rogue profligate profiteering nature of this company into the 21st century. And we certainly aren't going to meet our climate goals. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about how PG&E has been dragged, kicking and screaming by state mandates into getting a little greener than it was. So why do we have this private company that profiteers, that burns things down, that cannot keep it, that blows things up, hello, San Bruno, that cannot keep us safe and cannot keep the lights on and certainly does that for a premium price. It is beyond my understanding why we as Californians would put up with this. And it's beyond my understandings of why California businesses would put up with this because we are operating as if we are a banana third world republic when it comes to utility service in California. Just just to start. <laughs> and tell us how you really feel. Yeah. Well, I but you know, I it, I guess the last thing I would ask you here, you know, we we talked about the PUC and of course you you noted this is now fully Gavin Newsom's PUC. What role, if any, will the governor maybe have in this? What role could the governor have in any of this? Is it possible that he could clandestinely, behind the scenes, or overtly um, put some pressure on the PUC to uh, you know shift their gears here a little bit? Is that something we might see? I sure hope so, because he'll be judged politically by it. I mean, look, the Republicans, as soon as this trail bill happened in the summer of 2022, the Republican caucus put out a letter decrying how crazy this was, and none of them voted for it. And they basically said, more fees are not a solution to already ridiculously high utility bills. And I have to say, I couldn't agree more. So the real problem here is, and under their original utility proposals, they were even more egregious. The utilities wanted even more money. Because of at least some backlash, the numbers have gone down some. But the Republicans are going to use this as a political whip against the governor um, if this goes through, because it's just cockamamie. No other state does it. And why would they? Because it's not going to work and it's a bad idea. Yeah, you can you can kind of hear, uh, you know, the commercials already uh, when, when you know, the governor starts his presidential campaign, whether it's now or 2028 or whenever that is, is, you know, the governor who raised your, you know, your utility bills, et cetera, you know. So it does seem like maybe, you know, politically... <laughs> might have some motivation to do something different. So. Well, and and let's be clear, the governor is close to PG&E. That's just well-documented. And so the more rogue and, um, and profiteering and unreliable PG&E is, the more that's going to come back to haunt him, I think, especially given that he championed AB 1054 in 2019, which completely changed the rules of what PG&E gets to charge its customers for versus what it has to bear, have to make its shareholders pay for. Well, uh, Ms. Lynch, you have given uh, us uh, an awful lot to think about. Uh, this is clearly an issue that's been flying a little bit under the radar, and, and um, we appreciate you coming on to, uh, today to talk with us a little bit about it. I think we've all learned quite a bit. Uh, we will definitely be keeping an eye on what happens uh, in the very 
apparently in the very coming weeks, given the lawmakers, uh, you know, interest in this now, which maybe they should have had a long time ago. But anyway, here we are, right? Well, let me say this one thing. The PUC is probably not going to publish its proposed decision until next year. So while the stew is on the stove and cooking, they haven't actually opened the lid to say, this is what we're making for dinner yet. And so that's why it's a particularly important time for you all to take a look at this while the stew is still cooking on the stove. Great analogy. I, I love to cook. so that's and It's a- an electric stove, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Not if PG&E can help it because they still have those gas pipelines. All right. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was great talking to Loretta Lynch. And we're going to go ahead and get into our next segment. But before we do, I do want to do one last reminder that uh, this week we are hosting our conference on education policy. It'll be a live event in Sacramento on Tuesday, November 7th. Go to capitalweekly.net slash events and get all the details. Or if you want to be a a virtual visitor, you can uh, zoom in and uh, the Zoom links are all available at that same capitalweekly.net slash events thing. We'll be looking at the role of of the school boards, be looking at the teacher shortage and other challenges. We'll be looking at upcoming legislation and proposed ballot measures. And our keynote for the event is Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurmond. We have some great speakers on the other panels. Delaney Easton, the former uh, uh, superintendent. Marshall Tuck, who came darn close to becoming superintendent. Uh, Some folks from the California Teachers Association, uh, from the California School Employees Association. It's going to be a good day. If you have any interest in education policy, I invite you to check it out. And we will ultimately uh, be turning all of those panels into podcasts. So for the next week or so, we'll probably be going dark on the new podcast and just and re- playing those playing those panels as podcasts. So with that, Rich, are you ready to go into our next segment? I am ready. All right. Well, here we go for who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Well, yeah, you know, some some weeks the 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 candidate is obvious or the candidates are obvious. Uh, this week is more, I think, on the local level. Um, as if you pay, if you're here in Sacramento and you've been paying any attention to things going on in the Sacramento City Council politics, you know that uh, City Council member Sean, how do you say his last name? I think it's Lalowy. Lalowy. He has not been having a good week. Uh, you know, he owns some uh, grocery stores in the Sacramento area. Apparently, federal and state agents raided those stores. Uh, to search for what were they searching for, Tim? Well, that's a good question. No one seems to know. Uh, of course, the spokesperson for the agency says uh, we're not at liberty to tell you, uh, but it was not a good look. They were uh, those stores were closed. There were uh, federal agents wearing uh, vests, you know, marked that as IRS agents, federal agents going in and out, taking stuff out. Uh, not what you want when you are an elected official. Well, I know in the past he he's had complaints that you know he he was not paying uh, his employees the state minimum wage. He was hiring underage workers, children to work, and putting them in in unsafe conditions. That he had retaliated against employees who had either suspected of making complaints or were cooperating with the the federal Department of Labor's investigations into him. 
Um, so, you know, uh, if any of those are related to the events of this last week, I don't know. We, as you noted, they're not telling us. Uh, he has not been arrested. There have been no charges filed against him. But yes, it's a pretty bad look. He's already announced that he's not going to be uh, running for re-election, which sounds like probably a pretty good idea, given all the other stuff that's going on. Uh, I know there was a rally outside City Hall recently, um, you know, from community people demanding actually that he step down now and not wait, not wait to fin or you know finish out his term. So he's definitely not having a good week. Oh, well, and it got even better. So the next yesterday, as we record this on Friday, uh, he was also uh, there was a B article that the Sacramento B, I should say. Sacramento B article that he had evicted, I believe, eight tenants from an apartment building without filing any of the proper paperwork with city. Uh, you know, the city, if you're going to be doing an eviction based on rehabbing your your apartment, you need to file paperwork explaining to the city what you're going to do and, and how you're going to handle this. He didn't do that. So these eight people have apparently been been kicked out and he rehab the apartments and is now i believe relisting them uh you know he denies of course that this happened but he certainly doesn't have any paperwork to show for it so uh sean lalloy cannot catch a break but he certainly seems to be skating at best on the edge of legality on a lot of things last year he was under a lot of scrutiny for where he even lived which is usually sort of a no-brainer not a big deal for a political candidate however for Mr. Laloi, this went through uh, quite a bit of investigation. Ultimately, I think they said that he was okay, but I think it was a close close call there. So this is a guy that has had uh, made some decisions that were I would refer to as questionable, and I think the the chickens are coming home to roost. Right. Well, there you know there are some other folks who maybe could have had better weeks. I know Katie Porter probably isn't happy that Speaker Revis uh, endorsed Adam Schiff this week, but. Yeah, that's a that's a distant second to having your businesses raided by by the Fed. So I think uh, Sean Lalloy, he's got to take the cake this week for sure, because, uh, you know, anytime the Feds are, are running through your business, that's bad. That's very bad. That's a bad week. Yeah. Well, maybe he could just, you know, cry witch hunt and try to fundraise off it. <laughs> right. That seems to be the playbook now. Right. Doesn't it? So that was a great show. We really appreciate uh, former. PUC President uh, Loretta Lynch coming on to talk about what's happening on the PG&E front. And uh, we'll be all <laughs> keeping an eye and see what happens as we go uh, marching toward January. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what you said earlier, folks. If you if you haven't done so already, sign up for the conference. There's still time. If you're listening to this on Monday, uh, join us. It's going to be a very enlightening uh, bit of information on the, yep. on the state of education in California. All right, Rich. Well, we'll see. I'll see you in person on Tuesday, and then uh, we will uh, we'll be back on the air as soon as we finish running the episodes based on the, the education conference. Thanks a Absolutely. lot, everyone. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.